This program is presented by Birch Gold Group, the precious metal IRA specialists. Good morning. In today's headlines, at least three people are dead after a gunman opens fire at Michigan State University. Another five people were injured in the shooting. One person is dead after a U-Haul plows through pedestrians and cyclists in New York City. While the motive is still not known, the suspect's family has spoken out on his condition. The U.S. military says it's recovered priority sensors and other high-tech equipment from the downed Chinese spy balloon. Find out what they believe its specific use was as it crossed the nation. Gender reassignment procedures. What happens when they go wrong? Arkansas lawmakers want to make it easier to file malpractice lawsuits against doctors who do the procedures on minors. And Texas does everything bigger, even love stories. Meet a couple whose love is an eternal blossom even after seven decades. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today's Tuesday, February 14th. And we have some tragic news to begin with. Three people have died and five are injured following a shooting on the Michigan State campus yesterday. The gunman reportedly died from a self-inflicted gunshot. And today's Daniel Monaghan has more on the story. We are very saddened to report that there has been an incident on the campus of Michigan State University. Authorities in Michigan say shots were fired on the campus in East Lansing Monday evening in multiple locations. The incident started at around 8.30 p.m. local time. We received multiple 911 calls of a shooting inside Berkey Hall. Numerous officers responded. Police say they were on the scene within minutes. And there we did locate uh, several victims of a shooting. A shelter-in-place was ordered as officers searched for a suspect. About an hour later, campus police reported another shooting at the Michigan State University Union building. Police and emergency responders acted quickly. We tended to the victims at both of those scenes. FBI and ATF agents also responded to the scene. Police say the suspected gunman is dead. The individual was discovered off of East Lansing University's campus. He reportedly died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Police say the five people injured in the shooting remain in critical condition at Sparrow Hospital. And Fox News reported that the gunman was a 43-year-old black male that was not affiliated with the university. And now over to New York. A U-Haul truck hit nine people in Brooklyn yesterday. One person is dead and eight were injured. The driver is in custody. While the motive is still not known, the man's family has spoken out on his condition. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. Police have identified the suspect as 62-year-old Wang Soar. Court and prison records show he has a history of violence. He served a year and a half in jail for stabbing his brother in 2015 and was sentenced to close to a year in county jail for another stabbing in 2020. Soar's brother-in-law says he's schizophrenic, was known to make threats, and belongs in an institution. It's believed he was homeless and living out of the van he hit nine people with. One person passed away after being critically injured. 
The other eight that were hurt, including an NYPD officer, are in stable condition. The city's police commissioner called it a violent rampage. Soar allegedly shouted, shoot me, I'm not stopping at police when they tried to pull him over, and told officers he wanted to die when they took him into custody. I can't believe it. These are my, this is my neighborhood. These are my friends. And uh, I just think the world is going crazy. Just crazy. The U-Haul was cornered by Highway Patrol after a half-hour chase that covered four miles. I personally think that they should be putting, again, uh, video cameras up and down Fifth Avenue because this is at least the fourth accident that I've seen here on the crossroad. The suspect has not yet been charged. The incident happened the same day. A federal jury began hearing testimony to help them decide if they should impose the death penalty on a terrorist that killed eight people in 2017 with a truck by intentionally driving down a New York City bike path. Police say there's no evidence that suggests a connection. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The U.S. military has recovered key electronics from the downed Chinese spy balloon. U.S. Northern Command says that includes priority sensors and other components. A senior State Department official says the balloon had high-tech equipment on it and multiple antennas. He says the device was clearly for intelligence surveillance and likely capable of collecting and geolocating communications. China on Monday claimed that 10 U.S. high-altitude balloons have flown into its territory throughout the past year without permission. U.S. officials refute the claim. Diplomats from the U.S., Japan and South Korea met for talks in Washington yesterday. It's the group's first trilateral dialogue of 2023 and the fifth during the Biden administration. All three diplomats expressed concerns over the humanitarian disaster in Turkey and Syria after last week's earthquake. They also highlighted security concerns about North Korea's nuclear weapons program, the war in Ukraine and tensions with China. U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman pushed back on Beijing's claims of the U.S. flying surveillance balloons over China and asserted the three countries will counter China's actions in the South and East China Seas. There are no U.S. government balloons over the People's Republic of China. None. Zero. Period. We will continue to counter the PRC's destabilizing activities in the South and East China Seas. We will keep working for maintaining peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. Sherman says the trilateral relationship remains strong and is only becoming stronger. In Arkansas, lawmakers are addressing gender reassignment procedures for minors. They want to make it easier to file malpractice lawsuits against doctors who provide them. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on their proposal. A state Senate panel endorsed the legislation on Monday. The law would allow someone who received gender reassignment procedures as a minor to file malpractice lawsuits against their doctor for up to 30 years after they turn 18. State Senator Gary Stubblefield discusses the thought process behind the law. The idea that teenagers, let alone little children, are capable of making such life-altering decisions is not only brand new, but it's absurd. Under current Arkansas law, medical malpractice claims can be filed within two years of an injury. The proposal is also being considered in other states as part of broader bans on such procedures for children. Dozens of bills in GOP state houses have targeted the procedures this year. They feel life-altering decisions with irreversible consequences are better left to adults. Pharmacist Gwendolyn Herzig disagrees. 
I have hundreds of patients currently on hormone replacement therapy that identify as being in the, in the transgender community. Herzig says bills like SB 199 are designed to hinder, not help the people of Arkansas. Aaron Jenin discusses the gender reassignment procedures of his child. It was a process that, you know, we did not take lightly. It's just like any other medical procedure that has risks and side effects. A federal judge who blocked Arkansas's ban on gender reassignment procedures for minors is considering whether to strike down the law as unconstitutional. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The price of eggs has soared to historic highs in the U.S. With wholesale prices recently coming down, many consumers are wondering when it will translate into savings at the grocery store. Some farmers say the troubles are far from over. Here's the story. Farmers across the nation have watched prices for their products skyrocket over the last few months. Frank Hilliker, an egg rancher in California, says many farmers are still experiencing high production costs due to inflation. So our feed prices are pretty much doubled. Our packaging has gone up 25 to 40 percent. Fuel's gone up. Labor's gone up. And, you know, any, any, of, our, any of the parts that we buy, any 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 spare parts we need all that sort of stuff it's all everything's gone up so it's just been really it's been really difficult but you know as long as we can have the egg price high enough to help pay for the uh, all that stuff then we're good he says consumers should begin to see a decline in egg prices this month as supply will steady out at the grocery stores we're in a lot better position a lot of the farms that had the avian influenza where they had to depopulate have been repopulated and birds are starting to lay eggs, which was great. Uh, we're seeing less and less of a shortage in San Diego. In December, the price of eggs was up 138% from a year before. The U.S. Department of Agriculture, or USDA, says the reason for the high prices was due to a record outbreak of avian flu. But a farm group says the nation's antitrust regulators should also be examining top egg companies for signs of price gouging. I go without if I can't afford it. I mean, I'm not going to, I, so I'm 17, $17 for a dozen eggs, that's ridiculous. I am not going to spend money on something that I know for a fact is, is just gouging, and that's what I feel they're doing. Hilliker says a bird flu outbreak is not only a local issue, but a global problem. He hopes it can be contained soon. These epidemics happen. It's a worldwide deal. And, you know, you try to isolate it as best as possible. Oh, a farm that has two million birds could break tomorrow, and all of a sudden we'll be in the next, you know, we'll be right back where we are. Since the beginning of 2022, Nearly 58 million chickens and turkeys have been killed by avian flu, or culled to control the spread of the virus. Mostly in March and April, according to the USDA, the previous largest outbreak was in 2015, which killed over 50 million birds. Shen Yun Performing Arts is giving more than just a visual feast to the people around the world. It gives you hope. That's what the audience says in Arizona. Let's take a look. Shireen Performing Arts delighted audiences in Tucson, Arizona on February 11th and 12th. It's really classy. The, the dancers are fabulous. The, the, all the wardrobes are sensational. You know, I mean, how could you not like it? It's steeped in culture and tradition, and it is really, we're really enjoying 
you know, watching the dancing and the performance, the professionalism that that these dancers are putting into. I mean, they're actually athletes who dance. The performers are top-notch. Those are some top-notch professionals. They really have some great skills, and you can really tell that there's a lot of time and effort and energy put into what they do. They must practice a lot. Through classical Chinese dance and original orchestral music, Shaoying brings thousands of years of Chinese civilization to life on stage. That was before communism sought to wipe out the nation's traditional culture. I think the mission is wonderful, so we can see what the culture actually was, you know, before the, the current government started destroying it back in the 40s. Loyalty to tradition, um, passion for your culture, um, it just sense it in the, in the dance. Obviously, it's apparent in the energy that you feel in the dancing that um, the message is strong in the hearts of the people that are performing, so I, I appreciate that. Full of joy, full of beauty, full of music and art, everything. I cried after about the second song because it was just so beautiful to see. And I think about the 5,000 years of the dynasties and I think about the people in China now and I really feel that they should have the privilege to enjoy their birthright their entire history. It's so incredibly beautiful. There's no other culture that can compare. Others said the performance inspired them. I love the fact that they bring back a wholeness to the, the heart. It, it, there's too much anger in the world and this brings back the beauty of what it's supposed to be like. And there's hope. I honestly believe there's hope because the, the arts that bring this back, it shows this, the story of what it can still be. It felt like there was a message of hope coming from God, and I just really enjoyed that part, and I'm really glad that that was something that was included as part of the show. For the rest of February, Shereen will be touring in Texas, Wisconsin, California, and other states across the U.S. NTD News, Arizona. Coming up, what's the hardest feat you've ever accomplished? If that's climbing a dangerous remote mountain in Antarctica, then you have company. We get some inspiration from a mother of seven who's on track for a Guinness World Record after doing just that after the break. Welcome back. Seven kids, six demanding mountains, and one near-fatal car crash. We hear the story from the CEO of a financial planning firm who's on track to hold a Guinness World Record. That's for being the first woman to summit the second tallest and hardest mountains on all seven continents. Please welcome mother and mountaineer extraordinaire Jen Drummond. Thank you for sharing your story with us today, Jen. Hey, thank you for having me. You survived what should have been a fatal car crash in 2018, and then you went on to accomplish incredible feats in mountain climbing like summoning Mount Everest and being on track to be the first woman to climb the seven second summits. Can you tell us how that crash changed your life? Yeah, that crash brought forward the reality of death. And I realized that I have no choice when I leave this world, but I sure have a choice in how I show up each day. So it made me very intentional of how I'm living my life because it can end at any moment. Yeah, it's just needing to seize the day. And you mentioned how you went from going living on autopilot to being more present and with intention. Can you explain this? 
Yeah, no, it was every moment that we just let pass by. I realized there's magic in all of them. I got a call from the principal's office after the accident because one of my sons was causing a little bit of ruckus. And I remember just being so grateful to get that call. And the principal's like, uh, and I'm like, listen, I almost died a couple weeks ago. I'm just grateful to be here. I'm sorry my son was trouble. We'll work through it. I promise you everything's good. That is amazing how you're just able to look past the trivial things in life and just have so much gratitude and a zest for life. The seven second summits, these are the hardest peaks on all seven continents. You've, you've climbed six of them already. They're dangerous. Can you tell us what kind of mindset you need in order to succeed in that kind of endeavor? Yes, you have to be very present and very accepting because the mountain is always in control. And so it makes a move, then you have to make the next move. A few of these mountains I've had to do more than one time because it wasn't safe enough to climb them the first time without having to risk my life. And I promised my children that I would come home. Wow, yeah, acceptance, yielding to nature. What values from your experiences have you instilled into your seven children? Um, the pursuit of passion. It's so much about the journey and not the destination. When we get to the top of a mountain, we might be up there for five minutes. It's taken a year of training and a lot of setbacks and all the little things to get to that summit, that if you're only there for that top moment, you've missed a whole bunch of the joy. Wow, really being able to just take in this experience. I can imagine what the views are like. Now, Mount Logan in Canada, that's your last climb for the seven second summits. How are you going to do it? And what's your mental state in the lead up to that challenge? Yes, so Mount Logan is a second attempt for me. Um, so I am ready this time. We had really bad weather last time that pulled us off the mountain prematurely, two days from a summit. So I've been training this winter. I have a great team that's motivating each other. Part of this mountain requires skiing. And so I live in Park City, Utah. So I've been skiing with my kids to let them know like, hey, this is what I'll be doing. This is what it feels like. We have to build snow igloos so our tents don't get destroyed by wind. So the kids have been having fun practicing snow igloo building here as well. Wow, there's just so much preparation that goes into that. What advice do you have for mountain climbers or anyone attempting something that's difficult? I think the more people that you can include in your goal, the better, because they just keep you on track, they keep you accountable, and they remind you of your why. And that's been a huge win for all of us and all of our pursuits here at our house. Having a strong team is really important. What was the hardest mountain you've climbed? And specifically, what was the hardest part of that mountain? I would say um, Tyree in Antarctica was the hardest. I was the second female to summit that. It's been summited by less than 30 people. So you just don't have the knowledge of the mountain. You don't have support from Sherpa or other staff to set the mountain up. It's all required of the team that's there at the time. Um, and you're so remote that if something goes wrong, we are an hour away from an airplane that has to have clearance to be able to land. And what was the hardest part of that mountain? Um, just there's no set rope. So you're tied up to the person that you're climbing with. So if either one of you make a mistake, you're both going to slide off the mountain. So you're very intentional about each step that you take and making sure that you're safe for you and you're safe for your partner. Wow, such great insights from you. Mother and mountaineer extraordinaire Jen Drummond, it was really great hearing from you. Thank you for having me. Coming up, till death do us part, but what if one's love is too strong for death? Meet a pair of lovebirds in their 90s 
whose passion still endures after seven decades. Welcome back. Today is Valentine's Day, and we asked people for their ideas on how to maintain a healthy relationship. Here's what they had to say. My advice I would give for a good and healthy relationship is communication and respect. Communication can go a long way. Trust and communication is everything. Absolutely. Yeah. Communication. communication. You for have sure. to be open with your person about any kind of issue. You have to communicate. What can help a relationship? Yeah. Uh -huh. Honesty, um, being able to talk and communicate always, um, being able to make sure you understand trust. I would say to have date night every Friday night and as time goes on you should have date night and go out to dinner every night. My advice is to listen and care deeply every day. Yeah, you've got to have uh empathy and communication. For me, I think it's compromise and I don't think that relationships are 50-50. It's 100%, 100%, 100% of the time. To think about the other person before you think about yourself. Trust each other and accept each other and I think you'll be fine. Accountability, being able to say you're sorry, um, being able to own up when you impact other people. I think first of all is honesty. Uh, good good platform to get started on. Just taking your time to get to know each other, really? Just a foundation, really? Building a strong foundation and let it go from there. I think the most important thing is to enjoy doing things together. To, to listen and invest time with your partner. Yeah. Talk. Talk. <laughs> <laughs> to celebrate Valentine's Day, we revisit the Texan couple who is still in love after 72 years of marriage. It's inspiring others to build lifelong relationships. Oh, people just, they want a love like theirs, you know, to like have a love that's lasted for so long. The couple's granddaughter, Jaylee, shared a video of some adorable moments between the two. It went viral. Before the video was taken, her grandmother was on pain medication from a broken pelvic bone and she was having an anxiety attack. The thing that calmed her was sitting in her husband's lap that day. And so we just thought, like, this is so cute. The world needs to see this. And then it just kind of blew up, and people were like, I want to see more of them. Surprised by the huge response, Jay Lee decided to release some more endearing moments of her grandparents. The loving devotion of husband and wife had a heartwarming effect on one commenter. He said watching them made him just, like, know that he wanted to finally commit and propose to his girlfriends. Kenneth first met Faye back in 1949. Having left her home in Fred, Texas to study nursing in Beaumont, Faye rented a room in Kenneth's family home. It was love at first sight for both of them. Married in 1950, they then started a family. Kenneth became a fitter welder and Faye a registered nurse. Despite working hard, they always made time to enjoy life. They had a very good balance of, of all the things and, you know, checking all the boxes, making sure that they're happy as a couple, but also their children are happy and traveling. Their love for life and resolve to stay together through thick and thin hasn't faded away. They claim that the secret to their long-lasting happy marriage is respecting one another, having a lot of love in your family, and doing things together. They always did put God first, and that's, that's a huge thing for our family as well, never giving up and working through. Communication is key. Laughing <laughs> is a big part of their marriage. 
they've reminded people true love exists and are an inspiration to their family. They've always just been our best role models. Their house was always full of love. The public has commented on their videos and how they wish modern love could be more like this. Well, I think people just seem to give up too quickly these days. And you don't see a lot of people like talking about God, I guess, as much as you used to. And plus, they're so old school. Morals are way different than, than people these days. So I think it's like, I don't know. I would see young people comment on um, their videos and be like, well, the boys these days are nothing like the men in those days. So I guess that's a struggle for people is just the, the generations are just night and day from what they used to be. And so I think that that's the hardest thing that people probably struggle with is that, you know, there's not a lot of um, decency, I guess, like there was then. For Kenneth and Faye, who share four children, an adopted niece, 10 grandkids, and 22 great-grandkids, life is slowing down in their 90s. They are in a nursing home, which leads Jay Lee to reflect. I think that being, like, paying attention to your grandparents and making sure that they feel loved and not forgotten, like, that's just so important. People don't, life gets busy, I understand that. It's just important to continue keeping them close and making them feel important and being around them. <laughs> it really gives me a warm feeling to see what a loving home they built. Oh, amazing. yes. I know. And I'm sure it gives their kids and grandkids a lot of stability. Yeah, for sure. It's an important, safe place to have, family. Oh, yeah. Well, and you know, for example, they say, you know, children who grow up with love are more capable of giving love, too, so. Yeah, might have a point. All right, on that note, we're wrapping up today. Write us at goodmorning at ntd.com. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.